A great American president, Abraham Lincoln, said that his country was the last best hope of Earth, a nation with a special mission to save mankind. I'm Professor Adam Smith, director of the Rothermere American Institute at Oxford, and on this podcast, I'll be exploring how this powerful idea shapes America. There are Irish-American societies and Scottish-American caber-tossing competitions in the American South, but you'd struggle to find anyone celebrating their Northeast English ancestral identity. Not so many Geordie clubs or St Cuthbert societies. Yet there's a strong case to be made that Northumbria, Northeastern England, Cumberland and the Scottish borders profoundly shaped the culture and politics of the American South. At least uh, a quarter of a million border English and lowland Scots, as well as Protestant Ulster Irish, arrived in the Appalachian backcountry during the half-century leading up to the American Revolution. The term we're familiar with is Scots-Irish, the transplanted Protestants in Ulster. President Andrew Jackson was one, embodying a kind of hyper-masculinity, a toughness, feuding, fierce independence, a vision of freedom as absence of external restraint. But... The term Scots-Irish is a bit misleading because it obscures the Northern English origins of even those who came direct from Ulster. This stream of migrants settled first in Maryland, Virginia and the Carolinas before moving on to Georgia, Tennessee and Kentucky in a hilly landscape that must have reminded them of home, just as far from centres of power, just as lawless, a new debatable land. The place that these people tended to land was called Newcastle on the Delaware River, which is perhaps coincidental, but very fitting in a landscape which was scattered with places like Durham, North Carolina, Northumberland County in Pennsylvania, the Cumberland Gap, and of course the fact that the Washington family themselves originally came from Washington in County Durham. I drove past their sign earlier, it says, the original Washington. (laughs) So how did the Northumbrians, the proud people of the English-Scottish border, leave their mark? Where is the Geordie folkway in America and why is it not better appreciated? Well, to answer these questions, I'm joined by the preeminent historian of Northeast England, Dan Jackson, author of The Northumbrians, Northeast England and Its People, and by the leading expert on Appalachian culture, Ted Olson, Professor of Appalachian Studies at East Tennessee uh, University. Thank you both um, very much for for joining me. And Dan, I'm gonna I'm gonna start with you. I've just set this up, Dan, as the Geordie influence on America. What are we talking about? Where are we talking about when we're talking about Northumbria? Well, Northumbria was once a kingdom. It, it's it's located now in the far north of England, that part of England that borders Scotland and. Um, its roots as a militarized frontier, I think, had such a profound effect on the culture of the people who who lived in that uh, part of the British Isles. Northumberland in particular is still the most fortified English county. It's got more castles than anywhere else. It was known, it was described at the time as the, the ring in which the champions met. And there's no other corner of England that's more soaked in blood. And it was first established as a militarized frontier by the Romans, of course, in the second century through the building of the Roman wall from from the Tyne to the Solway at that narrowest part of the island of Great Britain. And 
that set the scene really for the centuries of history that followed for even when the Romans left it was a site of contest between the emerging Anglo-Saxon kingdoms and then fighting off the Vikings who arrived from over the North Sea and then it was the site of the harrying of the North during the Norman conquest and then as the spot where England and Scotland, the the medieval kingdoms of England and Scotland, collided with each other for centuries. And it meant that patterns of life and tenancy and organisation and architecture and everything in this corner of England were different to the rest of England, where swords had been beaten into plowshares relatively early in in our national story, whereas the, the border wasn't really didn't really calm down until arguably the 17th century during the the union of the crowns between England and Scotland through James VI of Scotland when he became James I of England. And the families who made a living across that border became known as the border reavers who prospered in that sort of buffer zone beyond the control of London or Edinburgh created this very macho culture that I think you can see echoes of some of our understanding of the culture that emerged in the American South and West uh, in the 19th century. And you can trace those traditions of the kind of upland ranching culture that emerged in that that corner of England, the tradition of feuding and belligerence and heavy drinking and, and patriarchy and all the rest of it. We became known as Geordies in the 18th century, possibly because of our loyalty to the Hanoverian King George's but that that culture became associated with a sort of hyper-masculinity through the emerging industries of the 18th and 19th century, particularly coal mining. And a kind of hard work and hedonistic culture became associated with the North East. So for better or worse, we are there are caricatures of the far north of England, which persist to this day. You've... Um... I mean, you're talking about we there, and I think uh, you know, c- careful listeners, Dan, will will hear your voice and will recognise that you you know you're speaking about your people. And I suppose, in the interest of full disclosure, I should say that I was also born and raised in the northeast of England. So, although my I don't have the same accent as you, and although I, it'll come back possibly if we're talking like this, you know, <laughs> it might come back. Mm-hmm. Ted, um, let's move to you. Um, so, tell us about the Appalachian region. You're the professor of Appalachian studies. How how do you define Appalachia? What gives it it, what gives it its distinctive identity? We call the name of our region here Appalachian because that is the derivation of the original native term for the interior of the continent. Uh, when De Soto and, and other early explorers landed in Florida, they encountered uh, native peoples who were trying to get them to go to the interior to kind of get them away from their their uh, Gulf Coast villages. And so that was the, uh, the term that was used. Appalachia is a landscape that is comprised prominently of mountains. And this is one of the most ancient mountain ranges in the world and extends from uh, Alabama and Georgia all the way up into Canada. Appalachia as a discrete region, however, is is really the southern section of the Appalachian Mountains. I live in a valley. I live in a very lush valley at the base of the Blue Ridge Mountains. It's it's the story of Appalachia. People eking out a living in difficult terrain or moving down into the valley where life is easier and where networks and, 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 and towns and cities could be constructed and where transportation 
and access to outside markets was much more tenable than in the higher elevation areas where people eked out a living in, in much smaller situations. It's not so much of a stretch, really, to imagine that where you're talking to us from now, uh, Ted, is, is not so different from where Dan's talking to us in the Tyne Valley. Um, you probably can't see the Cheviot Hills from your uh, front room there, Dan, but um, you know, the, the landscape's somewhat similar, isn't it? It's certainly more similar than the flatlands of East Anglia or the, or the, or the southeast of England. Oh, yes, absolutely. It, it, the way Ted's described it is, is very familiar, particularly as you go up towards the Scottish border. So the idea here is that there are, and I've got to you know, credit David Hackett Fisher's 1989 book, Albion Seed, with popularising at least uh, this idea. Fisher was a, was a former Harmsworth uh, professor at Oxford, amongst other things. But his, in his book, he sets out four different folkways from the British Isles, Puritans from East Anglia settling in New England who kind of regulated freedom uh, with a sort of strong moral code and a sense of collective responsibility. And then you've got the Quakers from the English Midlands and Lancashire who were going to Pennsylvania and the mid-Atlantic states. Then you've got the so-called sort of Cavaliers and their indentured servants from the English South who are settling in Virginia and the Delaware Valley. Um, And then there's the people who we're focusing on, who Fisher calls the borderers, which fits completely with Dan's thesis, the the border, the border region um, of England and Scotland and encompassing Ulster. There was this migration, of course, in the in the 17th century plantation of of Ulster by Protestants. And it's from there. Then there was a big migration in the 18th century across to North America. So. Dan, what kinds of people were migrating across the Atlantic from Northumbria? Well, what evidence we do have is that these these borderers, if we can call them that, were were coming mainly in family groups, which fits in with the, the point we made about the cl- sort of clannishness of of that part of the British Isles. There weren't as many indentured servants as there was in uh, those other folkways that we touched on. And broadly speaking, those borderers tended to have much more humble origins than perhaps the better off Puritans of New England or the or the, the Quakers who went to Pennsylvania. And again, that fits with the, the point that the far north of England, the far south of Scotland, were kind of poor and marginal places. These people were economic migrants. They were looking for a better life for themselves and, and more opportunity across the Atlantic. And Ted, why did they end up in the Appalachian Mountains? Much of the best farmland was already occupied by earlier immigrants. And what was left? The mountains. And so it, w- there was a sense that land could be had there uh, quite affordably. And uh, so they headed down the great wagon road from Pennsylvania into Appalachia and settled in mountainous areas, much of the uh, fertile valley region uh, along the Shenandoah River uh, had already, already been taken by German uh, farmers. So They couldn't settle there. They had to move on. It's important to point out that uh, the King of England in 1763 set up a proclamation prohibiting settlement west of the Blue Ridge, but many of these settlers went directly there, west of the Blue Ridge. Which obviously put them directly into conflict with indigenous peoples. Exactly. There were many battles, many skirmishes, I, I would say, uh, you know, also a few pitched battles. So in their own minds, these people had fought and won as they would have seen it. I mean, they dispossessed 
indigenous people. They'd fought and won for their land and they'd done so in, in clannish groups. And this is this is really very similar from the kind of border reaver culture that Dan was talking right. about earlier. One of the more interesting things that's, that's said about the speech in the, in the place that I grew up was that it, it was a kind of antiquated type of English, almost Anglo-Saxon. It was like the English that Chaucer would recognize for many reasons. It was a kind of a place that was largely untouched by kind of other influences it was quite a remote area so that the 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 patterns of speech were fixed in time to a degree it also didn't go through that great vowel shift the language the northumbrian speech didn't go through the great vowel shift that the rest of english did so that for example certainly my grandparents spoke like this unselfconsciously you we would say hoose and tune rather than house and town or they would say certainly rather than certainly Ted, how would you say, if I were to say, how do people in your part of the world, how would they refer to a uh, woman who has been bereaved after her husband has died? How would they say that word? Widder. Dan? Widder. There we go. Pro- thesis proved. So we've got, um, so we've, we've got the suggestion, at least, that there are ways of speaking, there are specific words, there are patterns of speech that may well have been transmitted down the generations from the north of England to the Appalachian region, albeit via Ulster. Dan's already listed a load of place names, and place name evidence is is always very important uh, in understanding uh, change across time. And then, of course, there's music, which is one of your specialisms, Ted. I mean, talk to us about the distinctive musical heritage of the Appalachian regions and is, is there any evidence of where that comes from and how we can trace that back to the British origins of the people who settled in, in your part of America? Sure. Um, well, of course, the great English uh, folklorist and, and music scholar Cecil Sharp traveled extensively in Appalachia during World War I and that time period and uh, working with some American scholars, uh, Olive Dame Campbell and John C. Campbell, He was introduced to a number of traditional ballad singers in places such as Western North Carolina. He gathered uh, some profoundly complete and and well-contextualized representations or documentation of traditional English ballad singing in Appalachia. And I think he made a case that not only had the uh, musical culture survived, over, you know, across the water, across time, uh, and surviving into the 20th century when he encountered them in Appalachia. But Sharp also was able to determine that a lot of the cultural values, a lot of the, shall we say, the um, the cultural practices and, and the senses of kind of social organization and, and, and the way of life had, had uh, more or less uh, continued in in the new world. I mean, he talked extensively about some of the styles of performance of the music in Appalachia, and he said it was very much a continuity to the old world uh, performance styles. Um, you know, a sense of reverence for the text and tune, and a sense of the performance as being. You know, something to draw the family or the or the the listening group to the ballad together into a community wherein the performance is more than entertainment. I mean, it's certainly entertainment, but it's also the 
kind of proliferation of, of, of social values that uh, are encased in the lyric of the ballad. The stories are not merely diversionary. They're kind of sacred texts to uh, history that, uh, that all listeners should hold dear. And then quite beyond that would be the setting in which the ballads were performed. And of course, some of those would have been in the you know, log cabins or in the uh, early uh, timber-framed homes that would be, you know, be built in uh, sometimes geographically isolated areas in Appalachia. So mm. there was a sense that uh, there was continuity to the old world among these people, a cultural marker that kept people connected and uh, was profoundly meaningful to all participants. There's, there's an example. Um, there's an example of the of, of the ballad of Chevy Chase. And Chevy Chase is. Uh, I mean, aren't you from Chevy Chase in Maryland, Ted? Is that right? That's right. I, I grew up in Chevy Chase, Maryland, which is an interesting coincidence here. Dan, can you tell us the the story? Because it doesn't. It refers to the the Battle of Otterburn, doesn't it? In the 14th century battle. Yes, it does. The the, um, the Chevy Chase, a, a chase is a sort of parcel of hunting land and the Chevy part of the title refers to the Cheviot Hills, which are the kind of almost the natural boundary between England and Scotland close to the River Tweed. And the Battle of Otterburn is said to be the origins of this particular ballad, although there's many versions uh, passed down the generations. But there was a battle in 1388 um, between some of the leading families, noble families on either side of the border, particularly the Percy family, who on the English side, and the Douglas family on the Scottish side. And um, this was just one of the regular skirmishes that took place between England and Scotland down the centuries. I'm, 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 recording, I'm recording this from Corbridge, which is a, an old Roman garrison town, and not far from me is the Vicar's Peel Tower, where the, the vicar actually had to live in a fortified miniature castle just in case the Scots appeared over the hill. So in 1388, the Scots had appeared over the hill. They'd raided down as far as Newcastle, and then uh, they'd returned back to Scotland, headed back that way. And Harry Hotspur, who was a famous figure, uh, part of the F- Percy family, gave chase. And they met in the hills of up in Northumberland, uh, near Otter, near the town of Otterburn, and Perhaps the most well-known version, which I'll just read a brief few stanzas from, uh, uh, is a bit of an epic, but it gets underway with The stout Earl of Northumberland, a vow to God did make, his pleasure in the Scottish woods, three summer's days to take. The chiefest hearts in Chevy Chase to kill and bear away, these tidings to Earl Douglas came, in Scotland where he lay who sent Earl Percy present word he would prevent his sport. The English Earl, not fearing that, did to the woods resort, with fifteen hundred bowmen bold, all chosen men of might, who knew full well in time of need to aim their shafts aright. Then the battle uh, takes place, Douglas is killed, Hotspur is taken prisoner, and this is just one of the many clashes that took place down the years right up until the arguably the, the last in invasion from Scotland in 1745 with the final Jacobite rebellion, the, the last year that the great walls of Newcastle were re-fortified. And after that, it finally calmed down. And, and this is, and thank you very much for reading that, uh, Dan, that was great. And the, and this is the, this is the kind of uh, ballad that when Cecil Sharp, who Ted mentioned earlier, this English famous English folklorist 
was traveling in this region in the early 20th century. This was the kind of ballad that he he still heard being recited and and sung. And Ted, can you tell us about musical instruments as well and the and the and the kind of musical instruments um played typically in in Appalachian music that might have accompanied a recitation of a ballad like that one? Well, frankly, most ballads as sung traditionally in Appalachia would have been sung a cappella just the voice, um, and often the performance, the, the performer of the ballad would have his or her eyes closed, and there would be kind of a rapt attention to mm. every imaginable. So it's all about storytelling, actually, It's all about it? storytelling. Yeah. Um, in later years, and, and we witnessed yeah. this in country music, the incorporation of instrumentation and accompaniment to ballad singing, the problem was when commercial music entered the picture, and recording technology was used to capture ballads and and to sell them to the public, Um, the technological limitations of time meant that most ballads couldn't be sung in full because they could only fit three minutes of material. Yeah, I mean, Dan was reading us three or four stanzas, but that actually, you, you, you could have gone on for another another half an hour there, couldn't you, Dan? I mean, it's a, it's a long story. Oh, yeah. Exactly. And, and I, sh- I should have maybe mentioned earlier that another distinctive feature of the northeast of England is that it does have, unusually perhaps for an English region, a very distinct canon of uh, song and ballad and even our own musical instrument in the shape of the Northumbrian pipes, which are the more acceptable version of the bagpipes, basically. Did the, did the North... They're a sort of fireside instrument, <laughs> uh, it, it said. They're, they're not like the Scottish yes. war pipes. They're yes. meant to be played in a pub or a farmhouse or something like that for these kind of gatherings that we've, we've talked about. They're a, a lovely, lovely, gentle um, sound. The, 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 the Northumbrian pipes didn't make it over to the Appalachian Mountains, did the Ted? Well, frankly, very few pipes made it over traditionally. They've since been revived, and it's not uncommon to hear people play the the Highland pipes in various kinds of uh, Scottish Highland games, you know, these annual events that are held in places across Appalachia. But of course, that's revivalism in action. Um, Mm. Historically, it was the fiddle was the primary instrument that was brought over by those settlers you mentioned earlier in the 18th century who crossed the waters and, and the fiddle was uh, could be transported. And sadly, we've never heard a revival of the Northumberland uh, pipes. Well, maybe it'll, maybe it'll come <laughs> after this podcast. The piece of music that we'll be listening to is called The Peddler and His Wife. And it's by a musician whose formal name was Hayes Shepherd, but he went by the title The Appalachian Vagabond. And he recorded in the 1929-1930 location recording sessions, which occurred in Knoxville, Tennessee, for the Vocalion label, which was owned and operated by the Brunswick Pool Table Company. Early commercial country music recordings... And and this particular one reflects that kind of five-note scale that was so common uh, in Appalachia, which perhaps can be traced back to old world precedent. The the lyrics are a bit hard to decipher because of the strong misality of the of the singer. 
but it's very much kind of a, a narrative song telling the story of a peddler and his wife who were murdered. Apparently a true story that happened in Eastern Kentucky. And it also uh, reflects that unique uh, kind of sense of scale, the, the way in which the music is sung is uh, very much an older tradition in Appalachia that reflects the, the musical world that Cecil Sharp would have encountered in Appalachia when he was in Appalachia during World War One. That's so interesting about the scale. So this this piece of music couldn't have been made, produced, sung from any other region of the United yeah, States. Yeah, I, I dare say that's true. Um, mm. For one thing, in other parts of the United States, there would have been um, other musical influences that would have intervened and kind of a, shaped the sound, um, such as African-American ways of singing, which were perhaps a little less, uh, you know, of a prevalence in parts of Appalachia. Certainly Appalachian music is influenced by African-American musical styles and, and approaches. And in fact, this recording features the banjo, which is very much an African derived instrument, you know, from an African prototype. Uh, yeah, so it's it, it's something that's very much a product of its time and place in the early 20th century. But listening to it, we can also, if we, as it were, listen hard enough, we can hear the influence of the Northumbrian border region ancestors of the people who settled in your part of the world. We've got a sense of this kind of distinctive migration uh, group people coming from from Northern Ireland and ultimately from from Northern England, as we've been explaining, and there are people coming from a region as Dan has been talking about, which was which was a border region with this naturally then with this sort of strong martial tradition with this clannishness, big families, and they're moving in North America uh, before the American Revolution also into a, a border region. I mean, they're moving onto the edges of of Anglo settlement, aren't they? And when the American Revolution starts to gather pace, when the tensions with Britain starts to gather pace in the late six, 1760s and 1770s, what, what side are these people on? What role do they play in the, the American Revolution? Well, you might say they played an outsized role in winning the revolution. It, it tended to come a little bit later in the revolution where these borderers, uh, these Appalachian-dwelling people, uh, played a role, but they played a decisive role in the Southern theater of the American Revolution, um, fighting a definitive uh, battle, uh, King's Mountain, reminding the uh, British authorities and the British military that uh, the borderers, the people of, you know, Scottish and uh, Ulster and Northumberland uh, descent um, were not going to side with the British uh, military. In fact, they were going to uh, take up arms against them. And uh, it, was, it was a rather small battle at the time, but it had great uh, consequence in kind of shifting the momentum. And uh, George Washington was quoted as saying that if he had more soldiers like the over-mountain men from the uh, Carolinas, which of course Tennessee at the time was part of North Carolina, you know, Southwest Virginia as well factored in here, you know, the mountainous parts of those two colonies. If, if Washington had more soldiers with the ferocity and the courage of, of those frontiersmen, 
uh, that uh, the war would have been over much more quickly. Given everything that um, that you said, Dan, about these people's ancestors and where they come from, I mean, this is exactly the role you'd expect them to play, right? I mean, they you know they they're going to resist central authority and they're going to um, they've, they've had long experience of fighting for their rights and resisting encroachments from outside. They absolutely did, yes. And they, n- not only that, but they were used to um, operating under their own sort of jurisdiction. There was a thing called marcher law. The marchers were another term for the borderlands. And uh, the English and Scottish uh, governments, as it were, recognised the marcher law that was dispensed in those in, in Anglo-Scottish uh, borderlands, which often re- revolved around um, uh, resisting encroachment from from any <laughs> neighbouring uh, families. Sometimes these were called the surnames or the border reavers. There were all these these sort of clannish families who made their living from uh, cattle rustling and sheep stealing and that and that sort of thing. And the done thing was was to um, not take lightly any incursions onto onto your land and to take matters into your own hands. It's even said that terms like blackmail emerged from the Anglo-Scottish borderlands as a, as a way of kind of extracting protection money out of out of some of your neighbours. So it was a very lawless place. And the, I mentioned the the the, the 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 Union of the Crowns in 1603, which was decisive for this for this story that we're exploring, because um, James the sixth and first was determined to pacify what he then called the Middle Shires. And he wanted to settle down this region. And he, in his in his first year as King of England, he he made an example of some of them and, and hanged about thirty odd in Newcastle and Carlisle as an example to the rest of them. And then he started to deliberately transplant these awkward customers out of this region to places like Northern Ireland as part of that that so called plantation of Ulster. Some of them also joined mercenary armies uh, fighting on the continent. He just wanted them out of the way to settle down what had been a difficult area to manage for a long time that was used to managing its own affairs. And to an extent, they kind of recreated that in a few generations' time uh, in the Appalachian region that, that Ted's described. Ted, the American Revolution, then they play this decisive role, resisting authority as they'd done for, for, for generations. So <laughs> why, why is this story not, not, not better known? The United States is a melting pot of many different cultures. I mean, I myself have four different European uh, you know, connections, different countries, including Scotland and England. People such as me and have a sense that uh, you know, our connection to our ancestry is sometimes tenuous and so without a direct connection to living relatives in you know in in an old world setting we can in some respects create our own sense of identity um and i think that's happened extensively in appalachia i regularly drive down the road in east tennessee western north carolina and i i see vanity license plates which allude to scottish ancestry now, I could bet that those people who are happily kind of trumpeting their Scottish roots, if, if they were to investigate, might find that their actual roots would be traceable to, well, Ulster or England, um, or maybe they think of themselves as connected to uh, Braveheart or something like that, William Wallace. 
um, when in fact they might find that they have more of a lowland uh, sort of connection. Um, so I think it's this situation where people construct their identities and we haven't had enough kind of, oh, I guess, media attention to the north of England as being distinct from other parts of England as, as meriting a close inspection and, and granting all due respect for all the, 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 cult, you know, the cultural contributions of, uh, of, of the north of England to American culture, to world culture. But I do think that it's absolutely essential that this kind of conversation happens so that people can kind of crystallize in their minds a sense of what the north of England is all about and that it is distinctive and that it is valuable to uh, read more about, you know, your part of the world and, and a part of the world that connects to a lot of Americans, you know, whether or not Americans are conscious of it. Dan, Dan, what do you think? What are your thoughts on this? Why has it not attracted more attention? Yes, I wonder whether because because we're kind of the, the Northern English are, are lumped into an English kind of ethnic grouping that became so dominant in the USA for a long time, you think about the kind of wasp culture and all the rest of it, that it perhaps wasn't seen as quite as uh, romantic or people are often attracted to the like the underdog um, um, uh, identity. I and mean, Ted's touched on the kind of Braveheart stuff and, and that sort of thing. I also wonder at a, at a basic level, the English are, are, are known as, as a people without a national costume necessarily so there's not much opportunity to get dressed up in tartan although Northumberland does reputedly have the oldest tartan in the British Isles the shepherd's plaid the Northumbrian tartan and of course Scottish and borders on the Scottish side never wore kilts either but you know that's the kind of invented tradition of the 19th century but um, what I would say is I encourage your listeners if you've got American listeners thinking about well maybe I should go and explore the, the far north of England I would encourage you to do that because it's such a beautiful part of part of the world it's absolutely stuffed full of amazing historic sites from the roman wall uh, right up to the amazing castles along the northumberland coast and if you would i would encourage people also to just google border border river surname map there's loads of them out there and it may be when you're looking at the the names that crop up you think if you're an armstrong or a graham a bell a charlton an elliot a gray one of those surnames you might actually have northumbrian ancestors that you may have assumed were Scots-Irish. So we've, I think we've done a good job of resurrecting that part of the story. That was Dan Jackson, author of The Northumbrians, A History of the Northeast of England, and Ted Olson, the leading expert in Appalachian folk culture. Both of them there making the case for the overlooked Geordie influence on the South. And the relationship between Northumbria and the American South was a two-way one. Here's a sort of coda to our discussion. In the early 1960s, a band was formed in Newcastle-upon-Tyne with Eric Burden on vocals, calling themselves The Animals. By the summer of 1964, they were transatlantic superstars, appearing on The Ed Sullivan Show, girls screaming wherever they appeared. Their breakout hit, of course, was The House of the Rising Sun, which tells a story, a pretty miserable one, based on the old story of the rake's progress set in New Orleans. The lads from Northumbria sounded like southerners. But that song was first collected by folklorists in Appalachia in the 1930s and in all likelihood owed its origins to an English folk song. The circle was complete. (laughs) 
Well, you've been listening to The Last Best Hope from Oxford University's Rothermere American Institute. Go to rai.ox.uk to find out about our programme of free events. Our mission is to support world-leading research on America and its place in the world and to share that research as widely as possible. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like us, leave a review wherever you get your podcasts and listen to some of the other nearly 50 episodes we've already made. Our producer is Emily Williams. Production assistance has come from Hannah Grieving. And my name is Adam Smith. Goodbye.